John chapter 21, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 19 this morning, if you'll look down and follow along with me as I read. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you, carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And After saying this, he said to him, follow me. We thank you this morning for your word, Lord. Pray that you'd apply it to our hearts, transform our hearts and minds and our lives in accordance with following Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Our title from this passage comes from Jesus' thrice-repeated question, Do you love me? And it is a necessary question that we need to not only examine in the life of Peter, but certainly in our own hearts as well. Because when we read this, we're not simply reading an account of some famous apostle who was going to go on and do great things because of his love for Jesus. That's certainly true. But it is for us as well to ponder this question. This is a searching question, church. This is not a matter of how you fall on the socioeconomic culture that you swim in week by week. This is a a heart-searching question, a priority-aligning question. And it's one we should ask ourselves often, even as shown through Jesus asking three times in that very moment. The call from this question of loving Jesus, as we see Jesus explain and teach to Peter, is that ultimately we're called to follow Christ in loving service to his people. That's what Peter is going to spend his life doing. That's how he's going to spend his death that ultimately will glorify God. And so we're called to ponder these things as well. Before we get too much further into that, though, I want to call your attention back to the Old Testament and temple worship and think on all the rules and regulations and the necessary requirements for sinful man to approach the presence of God, the need for purification, the responsibility of perfect obedience, of following rule after rule and making sure that you do nothing wrong. And I'd even call your attention back to the historical assumption, perhaps we could call it, that when the priest was to go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, we're told through tradition, it's not as described in Scripture, 
we're told through tradition that a rope would be tied around the ankle of the priest that was chosen to go into the temple. And that that rope was designed to be tightly tightened to the ankle of this person such that if they make some kind of error or sin in a grievous kind of way while in the very presence of God, that their dead, limp body could be pulled out without someone else going in at risk of seeing the same fate for themselves. Approaching God in our sin as it stands unresolved. It's a pretty terrifying thing. But remember in this very chapter, what we looked at last week with the great catch of fish, and with that moment that John realized that the guy who was giving them all the fishing instructions on the beach was the Lord himself. Do you remember what Peter did? Yeah, he put on his tunic, jumped out of the boat, swam 100 yards to go be with Jesus. In one sense, we have this amazing picture of Jesus, or rather, of Peter covering himself in preparation to go meet his Lord. But at the same time, you have this unorthodox, very radically opposed idea of what approaching a holy God looks like in Peter's short swim to the shore. He came excited and anticipating the love of Christ. But he also needed to face what his sin had done to his ability to follow his master. They have their breakfast. They're enjoying company together. This is, again, the third time that Jesus had revealed himself after his resurrection. The disciples have been anticipating this meeting. They didn't know what it would amount to. And while we're going to focus on Peter quite a bit, I want you to also kind of imagine the other disciples sitting around as well, listening to this conversation that we just read. And what might be going through their minds, it's, I think it's very easy for us as we read conversations between Peter and Jesus to imagine the disciples saying like, oh, this is just between them. Maybe we'll talk about something else. Let's, let's go count the fish again. Or, or let's talk. No, I imagine they're listening to every one of these words and applying them to their own hearts as well. And so should we. Outline is rather simplistic. As we look at this passage, verses 15 through 17 is this do you love me conversation, and 18 and 19 is this prediction, this prophecy, really, of what Peter's death will look like. But if you notice, when Jesus asks these questions, they don't really change too much, except for in this first one. If you look down again at verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you notice that's the difference in the three questions, is just this addition of more than these, and Grammatically, there's a couple of options that are rather silly narratively. There's really only one good option for what he means by more than these, and that would be, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Because that was Peter's error on the night of Jesus' betrayal, wasn't it? His overconfidence. And his setting himself apart. We read in Matthew 26 that when, when Jesus had revealed to the disciples that they were all going to fall away and betray him, they were going to leave him alone after the betrayal of Judas, Peter is the one who stands up and says, Lord, even though everyone betrays you, or rather everyone falls away, I will never fall away. It's not exactly the same wording, but you've got to kind of imagine that when Jesus asks this question in the first place and adds that, do you love me more than these, more than the rest of the disciples love me? Peter's mind probably went back to that statement. Do I love Jesus more than anyone else? 
The thought of betraying Jesus, of falling away as a disciple, is so repulsive to me that I would say, boy, even if every other Christian failed, I would never fail. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this is repeated three times on purpose. Do you know why Jesus asked three times the same question? Yeah. And so you can imagine as we come to the end of this, when it says Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time that Peter's remembering, oh, I know why he's asking me three times. But it is amazing that as Jesus is working reconciliation into Peter's life, he gives him really what is a similar opportunity to make right the wrong that he committed just days before. Obviously, our sin is only made right by the blood of Jesus, but he also kind of brings us in to participate in the rightening of our wrongs in so many moments. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. And then we get this threefold command that comes after. First, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Now, the word changing isn't super important here, but it is kind of interesting. The Greek has this word feed as a word that means to pasture, to care for. Lexicon, Greek lexicon says that this, is, this word feed means to spiritually nourish or to promote in every way the spiritual welfare of the members of Jesus' church. Then we have this word, feed changes to tend, which has a, perhaps a direction of this idea of shepherding or ruling over, governing the sheep. There's so much in this passage for elders in a church to consider in leading the church and being under shepherds of the good shepherd. We're not going to go that direction today. As Jesus gives this idea of tending and feeding the flock, my sheep, he's of course referring back to John 10 when he talked about himself as the good what? The good shepherd, right? Who lays down his life for the sheep. See, what Jesus is doing that's so fascinating here is in the moment of reconciliation, he's also equipping Peter for the ministry that he has for him. Jesus doesn't reconcile us to himself only for the purpose of making our, right, our relationship right with him. That's really important. But truly, that work for us has been accomplished at the cross. This act of restoration or reconciliation is for us to walk in the reality of that and to see what that truly means and thus our call. In reconciliation, come to a place of following Christ and follow Christ in loving service of his people. While this passage, again, is very good for elders and leaders of the church to consider, it's also essential for all of us, whether we hold an office or not, to consider how our love for Christ is revealed in our love for each other. This is what Peter is being called to. And we need to come back to this question when we think about the church. Do we love Christ? Really, there's, there's no other question. It's not as though Jesus doesn't say, do you love me? Yes, okay, good. Now, do you love the church? Good. Now, do you love ministering to the church? No, the question is just that. Do you love me, Jesus asks us. Then feed my sheep tend my sheep. In verses 18 through 19, 
it changes a little bit in that he brings Peter to sort of the end of his life, of, of what a life of tending and feeding sheep will end up being. And certainly, it's interesting that he, he gives a comparison. When you were young, you used to get up and you dress yourself and you go wherever you want. But when you're old, that is the end of your life, he says you will stretch out your hands. That's a clear reference to crucifixion. We don't have a perfect account of Peter's um, death in church history. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but certainly Jesus' prophecy that Peter would be crucified must have come true. He said that when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And then John gives us that beautiful parenthetical statement. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. The purpose of our life, the purpose of our death, is the glory of Jesus. While alive, that glory is revealed by following Christ, by serving and loving his people and calling others to come into the fold as well. And that the end purpose of our death is to find the glory of Christ as well. Well, I'll give you here at the front two, three things that will mark Peter's life after the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, his devotion to Christ will no longer be based on his impulsive statements. Isn't it beautiful the way Jesus handles, with, handles Peter's impulsive statement of, even though everybody else falls away, I will never fall away. He doesn't say, now Peter, let's sit down and talk about what you said. Let's talk about how it was wrong. Let's talk about how you're really full of yourself and think that you're all you really need. He boils it down to that simple question, do you love me? Peter's devotion to Christ will no longer be based on his impulsive statements, but they will be based on Christ's love for him. 1 John tells us that we love Christ because he loved us first. Secondly, Peter's devotion to Christ will be shown through loving care for other believers. There is no right Christian lifestyle that claims to love Jesus and doesn't allow that love to pour out into, the, into love for the church. You cannot live the Christian life alone, even if only on that one point. If you ask yourself the question of your love for Christ, you need to look to the result of how are you serving and loving the church as well. This is not going to turn into a sermon about how after this you need to sign up for junior worship and you need to become a deacon. And you need to, that's not exactly the direction we need to go. We need to start with our hearts first. We need to recognize the things that might be in the way of that just as Jesus did with Peter. But thirdly, a third thing that will mark Peter's life after the resurrection of Jesus. His devotion to Christ will be shown by accepting the consequences of this life for following Christ. That is, again, of course, the matter of his own crucifixion, of his execution for preaching the gospel. Christ's desire for his disciples is pure hearts of love for him displayed in their love and service to each other for the glory of God. And it is interesting, again, as we look at those last two verses and compared to verses 15 through 17, and what's the connection? He's, he's basically saying, look, your whole life is going to be marked by this. If you love me, feed my sheep. You don't do that for a season and then stop the church life kinds of things. It's important for us to see that this is the desire of Christ for every one of his saints. And neither Peter nor we are ready for this mission if we have unresolved sin in our hearts. Because unresolved sin obstructs our love for Christ. Or rather, our, love, our receiving love from Christ as well. 
our ability to see it. So let's put ourselves back again into this passage and consider the setting. Peter and the other disciples have had this amazing catch. They're invited back to the beach to sit, to relax, to enjoy a peaceful and, and what was probably an amazing time with Jesus on the beach. It's kind of cool when we think about Peter and the disciples hanging out on a beach and how today the beach is associated with relaxation, with getting away, removing yourself from your problems, removing yourself from the rigors of daily life and all those kinds of things. And in that way, maybe we can kind of relate to the setting quite a bit. But in this sort of beach picnic breakfast getaway, Peter is confronted in the midst of the peace of all that moment with this searching question of, do I love Jesus? Just as the fish were caught in the net, so now Peter is caught as well. In a good way. We see the only mention of Peter's emotional response to this as Jesus asks him the third time. This happening here in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. We already said that this third time is significant because of the three denials of Jesus. But interestingly enough, the Greek lexicon says that this grieved word, that he was grieved, means that he was thrown into sorrow. Wonder if you've ever seen in your child's eyes or in someone else's child's eyes, um, in a moment of discipline, that moment where they too have been thrown into sorrow, where perhaps the tears haven't come until they realize what they've actually done. This is where Peter is. He's not thrown into sorrow by his sin, he's thrown into sorrow by his Savior. Jesus is the one doing the throwing. Jesus is the one who interrupted this perfect, peaceful moment, this breakfast at the beach. We could have just had a nice day, and you could have ascended back up to heaven, and we would have gone on with fishing or whatever else we were going to do. But Jesus, you had to bring up this whole betrayal, this whole denial, and this searching question, do you love me? We don't like dealing with our sin, do we? Peter makes it, well, Jesus makes it clear to Peter Dealing with our unresolved sin is necessary when we're considering the love of Christ. Now, when I say unresolved sin, I want to make it clear that Jesus has paid for your sin at the cross. Insofar as God's eyes view your sin, they are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. That is certain. And on that foundation, we see Jesus meet Peter and throw him into the sorrow of his own sin. No one wants to be thrown into sorrow. Everything in our society wants to push away from any kind of sorrow whatsoever. And largely, we kind of take that as a good thing. We don't like being sad. We want to be joyful and happy. We want to do things that are going to make us happy. And it's very attractive to imagine a Christianity where all that's going to happen is God's going to just give you all the happiness you've ever wanted and not let any sorrow come in. But if this is true, that this is this Greek word of being thrown into sorrow, then not only is Jesus allowing sorrow into Peter's life, but he's throwing him into it in an incredibly personal way. J.C. Ryle, a preacher in the 1800s, says that like a skillful physician, Jesus stirred up Peter's grief intentionally. 
he needed to deal with the sin on an emotional level. We talk about emotionalism quite a bit, I feel like, in, in, in church and in Sunday school, wherever we might be. We want to make sure that, that church isn't just about us you know, singing that song that we really love and stirring up our feelings, and that's what's pleasing to God. But our emotions are important. And when it comes to the matter of our sin, to have a cold and calculated mathematical approach to dealing with our sin negates Jesus' question entirely. Because the thing that comes into question when sin is unresolved is, do you love Jesus? Now, just simply the fact that we do sin doesn't mean that we don't love Jesus, and that's something we get from this passage. But when we allow sin to, in one sense, rest unresolved at the place of our hearts, though it is resolved at the throne of God, when we don't deal with the things like confession and seeking forgiveness and repenting and seeking reconciliation with Christ, vocalizing our sin before him in prayer, I think there's three things that happen. First of all, unresolved sin obstructs the love of God because it stifles spiritual growth. Sin gets in the way and becomes a barrier. Sin that's unconfessed and unresolved. And with that, we should have no hope whatsoever of growing in our spiritual lives. The good news in all of this is that for the truly born-again believer, there is no such thing as eternally unresolved sin. Our sin is going to be resolved. Just as it is with God, so it will be with us. But we are an active participant in this part of it. And if we truly want to grow and to become more Christ-like, we need to deal with our unresolved sin because that unresolved sin will stifle our spiritual growth. Secondly, unresolved sin relativizes our wrongdoing and makes it seem less than that of others around us. And this is where Jesus' command to feed and tend his sheep kind of comes into play for us in our everyday spiritual life. Because if I have unresolved sin, that is, sin that I haven't confessed to the Lord and dealt with at the place of my heart before God, not only am I not spiritually growing, but I'm letting that sin kind of sit as a dead husk of what I did and, and let it kind of become something that affects my view of other people. It relativizes my wrongdoing. It makes me say, either whether I acknowledge it or whether it just simply plays out in my life this way, if I don't make the effort to confess my sins and repent of those sins before God in prayer, I am acting as though my sin is really no worse than anyone else's. And that if I'm being an obedient Christian and calling other people to repent, certainly that's part of what feeding the sheep means, right? We should be holding each other accountable as we grow in relationship. If we see sin in each other's lives, we should be saying, brother, sister, I'm, I'm concerned about this. Can you talk to me about this? And, and I think maybe there's a matter that you need to confess before the Lord. But if we're doing that while at the same time harboring unresolved sin in our own lives, we're not living the gospel whatsoever. Thirdly, unresolved sin obstructs the love of God because it cheapens the work of Christ at the cross. It cheapens the work of Christ at the cross. Even if only in that we say, I don't need to worry about this sin that's clearly on my mind, that's clearly in my life, because it's forgiven, if I'm at that place, I'm at least making the cross look like 
just some kind of magic spell that's cast over my sin and that it just disappears and, and, and there's no actual change in my life whatsoever. So the cross did not just take care of the penalty of sin for you. It washed you clean. It was the means by which God gave you new life. And if we only make the cross the thing that gets us out of jail for eternity and nothing else, we've cheapened the work of Christ at the cross. This is what unresolved sin does. And Jesus was not going to leave Peter to live under the assumption that he was forgiven. This is why we, we want to preach the gospel every Sunday morning. This is why every time you come to God's word, you need to be thinking about what Christ has done for you. Because if we're not living in a gospel-saturated mindset, we will let unresolved sin fester and grow and seem as though a perfect reason to cheapen the work of Christ at the cross. And we'll live under a sort of assumed forgiveness. Don't ever live under assumed forgiveness. The way that might look, again, might just simply be saying, you know what, I know that there's this sin in my life, but I am forgiven, and so whatever, I'm going to move on. It is right and necessary for your spiritual growth, for your relationship with others, and for your worship to deal with sin at the place of your heart, to confess it to the Lord. Sometimes that might mean getting away for a weekend, hanging out in the cabin in the woods and just saying, Lord, I need deliverance from this sin, or I need to really sense the weight of my sin so that I can better understand the weight of your salvation. It may be to that extreme. It may be just in this moment as you're hearing this that you might just have to go, Lord, you know what? This morning was not a good morning. I was grumpy, grouchy. I was hasty with the kids. I was very short with them. I wasn't patient. Lord, please forgive me of that. It's necessary for us to take all those steps in whatever degree that sin has some place in our lives and not to live under the assumption that we're forgiven but live in the reality of our forgiveness you see the difference of that the difference between an assumed forgiveness and the reality of forgiveness might just be that rather than ignoring my sin i walk in the reality that even though i have sinned christ has redeemed me and i am new today Sin is not resolved in our experience until the discipline of the Lord meets us in the question, do you love me? And it, Jesus, oh, this is what's so wonderful about this passage. He gives us such a simple, easy, accessible way of dealing with our sin. If, we, if we've considered it at the place of our hearts, just meet it with that question, do I love Christ? If we're to live the, the life that Christ has won for us, then we need access to Christ. We need to reciprocate his love. We can't do that if sin is in the way. Peter had to face his sin in order to find that reconciliation and to live in that reality of forgiveness. So if we don't face and deal with our sin, we have no assurance that our sins are actually forgiven. If your relationship with sin, whilst calling yourself a Christian, if your relationship with sin is just basically that of, okay, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, so that's about it, you have no assurance that you're forgiven. You have no reason to have assurance. You might think so. You might think, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, so I'm fine, but you have no reason to think that. Sin grieves the hearts of believers. When we recognize our sin, believers are tossed into sorrow, even if only for a moment. 
And if we don't have even the slightest notion in our hearts that our sin has disappointed the God who sent his son to die for us, what assurance can we truly have? Jesus doesn't give Peter a pattern for dealing with sin that is all introspection and all meditation and all sitting at your desk or at your quiet place, but rather what he gives us is there's a reason that you need to deal with sin. I have work for you to do. There's a reason why you need to walk in the reality of your forgiveness because Jesus is calling us to relinquish the direction of our lives for the mission of his church. Again, he moves Peter through this threefold question, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. We too must relinquish control of our lives to Christ. If we're going to walk in the reality of that forgiveness, we need to walk in the reality of the mission that he's called us to. Just realizing I got something out of order here. I apologize. It's going into the fourth point. Really meaning to go into the third point. Look to the love of Jesus to bring you to three things. Humility, repentance, and love. We who love to hear of the cross, if you come to church hungry to hear about what Jesus has done for you, we should be the first ones in line to hear of and deal with our own sin. Because when we do that, then after being tossed into sorrow, we are tossed into joy. We are tossed into humility so that we can be tossed into repentance and tossed into love. See, love for Christ is is that love that drew Peter out of the boat when he was only 100 yards off. Are you willing to be plunged into sorrow so that you can be plunged into the love of Christ? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, grief produces death. Like if our grief is just in this, oh, I'm a miserable sinner and there's no hope for me and oh, I'm such trash and oh, what is, what's the point of going on? That's worldly grief. But godly grief is that grief that says, oh, I am such a sinner, but God is such a good Savior. Christ has done such a miraculous and wonderful thing to make me new. And so we find hope. In the cross, we find that God is not interested in sweeping our sin under the rug. And we find that that is for our good. We might think it might be for our good for God to just say, yeah, stop worrying about your sin. Don't worry about it. Just, it's, it's fine. Just sweep it under the rug. We'll pretend like it's not there. But rather it is for our good so that we can be equipped, so that we can be plunged into his love, so that we can sing of how amazing his love truly is, as we have been doing. Your failure, your betrayal of Christ, your denial of Christ have not ultimately disqualified you from living in humility, repentance, and love for Christ. Because it didn't disqualify Peter. Peter takes this notion of what Christ has done at the cross and what he's done for him particularly and, and what he's called him to in feeding the lambs. And he writes about it so much. I mean, it would be just super fun for you. Maybe not fun. That's not always the right word. It would be helpful for you after seeing this passage to go and read 1 Peter 
and see the, how many times he talks about love for the brothers and laying down our lives for each other rather than for ourselves. He basically says we need to do what Christ has done for us for each other. Not pay for our sins, but lay down our lives, lay down our own prerogatives because of what Christ has done to make us whole at the cross. So, in light of that, relinquish the direction of your life for the mission of Christ's church. Peter, historically, we understand that Peter was crucified. Church tradition says that he asked to be crucified on an inverted cross because he wasn't worthy of, of experiencing the same death of his Lord. That point is not so entirely clear in church history. But certainly as we look at what Peter was called to by Jesus in this passage, we see that the, the one clear point is the glory of God that that was what Peter's life amounted to in all of this. So our assurance is the same. A life that is lived in love for Christ and shown in love for the sheep results in the glory of God. So this is what's fascinating. is It's very easy for us as believers to perhaps grab onto like a couple of those things or maybe just one of those things and leave the others behind and ultimately miss out on the whole picture. I remember when I was in college, it was all about community. Like, that was the most annoying buzzword that I kept hearing. It was, oh, man, we had such great community here, and we love each other, and blah, blah, blah. And I never hear about Christ. I just hear about other people. Then, maybe, you can almost take the illustration of then going to seminary, perhaps, or, or being in more, uh, you know, theologically studious circles where people love books, and they love learning, and they love, they, they say that this is how they love Christ, but there's no love for his church whatsoever. Our assurance from this passage is a life lived in love for Christ, shown in love for the sheep, results in the glory of God. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm just going to focus on the glory of God. Well, Christ focused on the glory of God. And what did he do? He laid down his life for his sheep. And so ought we. The last thing I want to kind of leave you with for the matter of application is to consider this priority of love. Because again, in 1 Peter, just give you one of these passages. In verse 8 of chapter 4, this is in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Did you hear that? Peter said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The question of do you love Christ is essential. And it's going to be shown most clearly to those around you by your love earnestly for other people, by your making it a priority. Again, this is not making it a priority to check off all the church events off your calendar and say, well, I know I went to that thing and I did that thing. No, but to be living in the life of the church. And those things on the church calendar are helpful for doing that and I hope you utilize them. But see them as a tool and not as a checklist to make sure, like, yeah, I can answer the question of my love for Christ really well because I do all these things at Crosspoint. But rather, I know of my love for Christ. I know that my love for Christ is healthy because I love the church. Because I earnestly love the church. As Peter says, above all. Peter makes this a high priority, and so we have to make space for our priorities, right? If we don't make space for the things we call our priorities, then they're not really our priorities, are they? I mean, it's, it's so easy for us to recall conversations that we've had, or, or even just the, the disposition of our hearts so often. 
we realize that, yes, if you were to ask me, is loving the church a priority in my life? I want to say, yes, absolutely it is. So, where is that displayed? How is it that I am, above all, loving one another earnestly? Remember, again, when Peter was called to tend the sheep of God, that word tend meant to nourish and promote the spiritual health of the sheep in every way. Peter says in chapter 1 of his first letter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Go to the word with an expectation that your imperishable life in Christ will be illuminated to you and that from that you will receive all that you need to live a life of obedience to the truth in brotherly love. Three questions for you in this priority of love. How will you prioritize your love for the church this week? Sorry, how will you prioritize your love for Christ this week? What will that look like for you? Secondly, how will it be shown through loving the church this week? And I mean this week. And I know you're thinking, you don't know what my week looks like. And I don't want to say I don't care, because I do. If your week is full, I feel sad. That's, it's hard to have a full week. But you need to prioritize this this week, church. You need to prioritize it. And again, I'm not saying come to all the church events or come do that, but where in your life will the mark of your love for the church reside? How will your love for Christ be shown through loving the church? And the last simple question, do you love him? Do you love Christ? I hope the answer is an exploding yes in your heart. And that from that you could stand and sing in thankfulness with us now for all Christ has done for us, and for the call on our hearts to be his, to love the brothers, and to live on mission to call others to join the family of God. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, it is necessary for us to examine whether love for you is a priority and whether love for your church is a priority this morning. And that if it's not, the only true answer we can really come to is that we haven't relinquished control of our lives to you entirely. Lord, we thank you that Peter wasn't told, do you love me? Yes, okay, then go off and convert millions of people. Go off and write part of the Bible. Go off and do these things. But he was told something that we all must receive this morning. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. If we love Jesus, we must love the church. Lord, help us to walk in that. And Father, help us to be a church that is known for that as well. Let this be truly the test of our faithfulness to you. And Lord, as our theme this year is to be equipped by you, we know we can't come up with a love for our brothers, our sisters in Christ. So we look to you now for your spirit, for the truth of your word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.